Welcome to Heroine City, the podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are talking about the 18th century courtesan, pioneering pinup and some would say the first celebrity in the modern sense of the word, Kitty Fisher. Welcome to Heroine City. The podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking about the 18th century courtesan, pioneering pinup, and, some would say, the first celebrity in the modern sense of the word, Kitty Fisher. I'm joined today by author Joanne Major. Jo spends her life with one foot in the present and one foot in the past, with a particular love for the long 18th century. She's co-author of several historical biographies and a collection of true tales, with her latest book being a biography of today's Georgian heroine. Kitty Fisher, the first female celebrity, is available now from your favourite bookshop or you can get hold of it directly from its publisher, Pen and Sword Books. I'm very excited to be welcoming Joanne Major to Heroin City today. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, listen, you know how I feel about this because Kitty Fisher is one of my favourite people in history and there's lots to talk about, so I think we'll just crack straight on. I want to know why you came to be writing a biography of Kitty. What was your journey to finding out about her? Yeah, I've had a bit of a funny route to coming to write historical non-fiction, to be honest. I've always loved reading, writing and history. They've always been my three main passions. When it comes to history, it's self-taught. I've described myself as a popular historian rather than an academic one. I am an experienced genealogist, though, and it's the research skills I learned through genealogy that have been invaluable to research in my historical non-fiction books. And it was actually through genealogy that I stumbled on a little-known story about another woman. And at the time, I'd met someone on a genealogy forum, Sarah, who I used to write with, with more bravado than anything else, to be honest. We set about writing this up. We started a blog and we got approached by a publisher that was looking to branch out into social history. And we were asked, had we got anything we'd like to submit? And we said yes. And within a week, we'd ended up recontracts with Kitty Fisher. She's someone that I was aware of, but I hadn't looked too closely into her life. She was actually mentioned in the last book I wrote with Sarah, kind of as an aside. But I looked into it a bit more carefully while I was researching that. I turned up some information that wasn't widely known. And that's when I started to consider writing her life more fully. To be honest, I was totally surprised no one had done it already because she is someone whose name is remembered. And if I'm honest, I feel like I've done everything back to front because while I was writing Kitty's book I'd actually gone to university to study for a degree in creative writing and I'm now an MA student everything back to front but it's all worked out in the end. You and I have a lot in common because I also did it back to front I did go to fashion college when I was younger then got into girl bands and pop bands and basically sang my whole career but after producing film and TV over in LA I moved in opposite Roehampton University decided to go and do a film degree so I also have done it the backwards way and then now I'm studying an MA in cultural heritage I also understand the draw of Kitty Fisher and that feeling of why isn't there already a biography. I actually have her on my phone. Cleopatra Dissolving the Pearl picture is one of my screensavers and the reason being is because I've always found her so inspirational as someone who is in the ether and we still talk about her to this day and that's not bad for nearly 300 years on. Like you say, the name is known because of the nursery rhymes, because she's in the Joshua Reynolds paintings. One of the reasons that she's never had a biography or at least 
having studied history now myself and looked at the sources, is because she was such a public persona and there was an aura of exaggeration and all those things that come with press adulation and celebrity, which we'll get on to. So I think she's been tricky for some people, but I also think the time is right for her because, well, it's been right for a while, I think, but we're getting to the point where women's voices in history are now being looked at and we're thinking, well, hold on a minute, if we don't have the records or we don't have primary sources, we're going to have to connect the dots to give them a voice and I think she's one of those people that you can do that with because there's plenty to go on and I also love what you've done with some of the sources and some of your theories behind the sources I'm going to let you talk about that but I just wanted to say thank you for writing the biography because it's helping me with my research. When I start researching I always approach it as a genealogist first because I always feel like I need to get the basics down, trawl through the parish registers, try and get birth dates, work out the family as well, the whole family dynamic because that's so important. Once I've got that and move on to other records. I think with women's history as well, there's always an assumption that not enough has survived to write about them, and that's quite often totally incorrect. Often you have to employ different methods, though, to find that information. Yeah, I think the source you're talking about is that I've termed it a pseudo-biography. It was The Juvenile Adventures of Miss Kitty Fisher, and it was rushed out in two volumes just after she found her celebrity. It's written in a kind of 18th century code. It's supposed to be set in Madrid rather than London, and Soho, where Kitty was born, is described as Soholio. Most of the men in it are given pseudonyms. Not the women, but the men, to partially hide their identities, but anyone at the time would have been able to work out who they were. There's an awful lot of fiction in the Jubilee Adventures as well, put there, I think, to titillate gentlemen readers. And because of that, I think it's been discredited as a source for Kitty's life. Because I've got the facts there, and I went through it really carefully, line by line, there was an awful lot of information that I could verify that was true, that it seemed like only somebody very close to Kitty, or Kitty herself, could have provided. So it was a case of discarding what was quite clearly fiction, looking more closely at what quite possibly was fact. I use that to fill in the blanks in Kitty's life. I also can have a guess at who wrote it. Based on the evidence I've found, it's possibly a man called Samuel Derrick, an Irishman who was a playwright and a journalist who wrote the early editions of the Notorious Harris's Lick, which was kind of a trade directory of London's prostitutes. If anyone's watched Harlots on TV, they're probably familiar with Harris's List or read any of Hallie Rubenhold's books, which are excellent, by yes, the way. love Hallie Rubenhold, <laughs> love them all. And love Harlots, actually. You know, people like us need impressing, right? I liked it and I think the acting was great, but yeah continue. I loved Harlots as well, it's brilliant. So yeah, I think Samuel Derrick was probably the author. He was someone who was known to Kitty and I suspect Kitty herself collaborated with it. She was really young at this stage. She seems to be a curious mix of being quite worldly and quite naive. And I think she just thought it was a bit of a joke, to be honest, a bit of fun. But it all backfired on her because basically she poked fun at the men who had taken her into keeping, as the phrase was. And they didn't like that at all. They abandoned her, more or less, straight away, all but one. That ended up being a really big source for Kitty's life. And I think it's something that most people who looked at her haven't really considered. Yeah, I think it's a really brilliant point, which also illustrates kind of how women have been viewed, or especially sex workers in this case, or 
people that are deemed frivolous or superficial, which obviously is something that was pinned on her being a celebrity in the modern sense of the word. Those sources have been overlooked for that exact reason. Also, her agency within this whole scenario because of course Joshua Reynolds is there and we all know he's a brilliant publicist and he did amazing things but she's got to have been part of that and you're just now pinpointing another avenue where she was super aware of her public identity and played with it I can totally see where you're coming from with that theory and I love that it's Samuel Derrick because he's another character that jumps out on the page doesn't he before we continue for those people that aren't aware of Kitty Fisher maybe they've heard the nursery rhyme but that's about it and they haven't read your wonderful book a nutshell version of who she was and why we should know more about her Kitty Fisher she's quite simply a fascinating woman and she's a total product of her era both for good and bad and she had this really dramatic but tragically short life she fell in love with a handsome army officer who went by the nickname the military Cupid, which probably tells you all you need to know about him, left her home and moved in with him. I think she thought of herself as his wife. She used his surname for nearly the rest of her life, calling herself Mrs Martin. But predictably, he abandoned her. She was left with a bit of a choice. She's about 17 years old at this point. She'd had a taste of the high life. She'd probably been taken to the theatre in London's Pleasure Gardens. And I think she wanted to carry that on. The sensible thing would probably have been to go back home and live a respectable life in Soho. But she knew two women who were or had been courtesans. And they seem to have taken Kitty under their wings and taught her the business side of that profession. So she sort of launched herself on the London scene as this courtesan, this bright new face. She was becoming now notorious. And then she had an accident. She'd learnt to ride a horse and she was really proud of her skills on horseback. And she's out with a friend and two army officers through London's park, going down the mile. There was a group of soldiers who wheeled round and spooked a horse, which galloped off. And the mile at the time, it's somewhere that people went to see and be seen. People are walking along in the finery. They're scattering out of Kitty's path. And her horse reared up and deposited her onto the ground. Luckily, she wasn't hurt. It was only a pride that was injured. And a crowd gathered round her. Someone recognised her. And Kitty could have played the victim here. She could have burst into tears, but she didn't. She laughed at herself and she made a joke about the predicament she'd found herself in. And silly as it seems, that was all it took to capture the public's interest. Someone called her a sedan chair. She was apparently put in there and carried off, waving out of it as if she was a queen to a subject. And the papers were full of her straight after that. The gutter press loved the idea of a fallen woman falling. And I've described her as the first female celebrity because, in my opinion, she's the first celebrity as we understand the concept today. She really managed her image very carefully and tried to make sure she was presented as she wanted to be seen. The first flurry of publicity showed her more as a common prostitute. There was a print with her on the floor, skirts up, legs akimbo, and that's not how she wanted to be seen. You've mentioned the portraits of Reynolds. That was definitely an attempt to stage manage her appearance. Yes, she quite quickly, though, turned her back on that lifestyle. I hypothesise that she was actually quite a romantic. She just seems to fall in love quite easily. She went off with a man who was married and lived with him in kind of obscurity for quite a few years until he died. And then she had to try and relaunch herself onto the sea, the Nathaniel Hone, the goldfish bowl portrait, which I've used on the cover of my book. That was her attempt to recapture her fame and her celebrity. Before she needed it, the man who was the hero of her story had entered. You 
young man, heir to a Kentish estate, handsome. He fell in love with Kitty. She fell in love with him. They got married. Seemed like she'd got her happy ever after. And then she became ill. That's the tragic ending, I'm afraid. Within six months of the marriage, Kitty was no more. Yeah, which is exceptionally sad part. But up until that point, she really rode the wave, didn't she? So there's so many things that you've just said that I want to ask you about. Maybe let's just start with Martin. There's so many things that you've brought to the table, or those little details that give us that fuller picture of who she was within this public persona. Up until this point, as happens with people in history, but especially women, preconceived unquestioned sentences about a woman who really no one has taken the time to look deeper into and you have it's interesting that you say she didn't want a certain type of attention from the press which is so relevant today (laughs) I mean there are so many women in the public eye today that you could compare her too. Sure, she played the game. She made money from being in the public eye. She took opportunities when they were presented to her, whether the fallen woman incident was an accident or not. Either way, what she did with it was brilliant. And I think her personality is what stands out for me. And she obviously was fun loving. But then on top of that, she saw the funny side of things and was able to use those things to her own personal gain and to her own credit, I think. That fallen woman incident if you want to compare it to Kim Kardashian's sex tape, again, debatable whether that was an accident, quote unquote. There are so many accidents that have then been used by women in order to rearrange the story and take control of their public image. And I think, like you say, she is the first celebrity from that point of view. And I love that you have pinpointed her agency within that. Martin is an interesting one. It's every Austin red coat bad boy. We kind of know that character in literary terms, don't we? That was the road to her career, right? The beginning point. She'd started to work as a milliner, which was an occupation that could have synonyms with prostitution, Definitely not all, but I found sort of an almanac from the mid-1700s that was designed to educate parents as to what trades were suitable for their sons and daughters. And they were advised against millinery for that reason. So it was known for that in Kitty's day. And milliners sold more than just hats. She would sell ribbons and hoops and skirts. And men would come into the shop just as much as women. It was an occupation where a woman could get noticed. By high society, she would go into the grand houses to attend to her female customers. Men would come to her shop. So it's likely that Anthony George Martin first saw her there. He lived in Soho as well. They met and I just think Kitty's head was turned, this handsome army officer. He was half Portuguese and no doubt he was totally handsome with his white powdered wig and his red uniform. I think she thought she'd found a happy ever after to be perfectly honest. I don't think she thought past that. Within this picture that you've just painted, you've pinpointed that you think she was a bit of a spoilt daddy's girl, which I think is a really interesting observation. I mean, how old is she at this point, 15? She's somewhere between 15 and 17. It's not totally clear, but she was young. I know people grew up faster in that day, but even so. And obviously coming to the point where she's blossoming and she's in that environment where she's getting a lot of attention, you can see that she was naive is the word, this gorgeous man comes in, but we've all been there at 15, 16, 17, (laughs) haven't we? So talk to us about where you got the idea that her dad doted on her. That's actually something that was in the juvenile adventures, but it's one of the items of information that has a real ring of truth about it. Kitty was his eldest child and it said that he just doted on her from the start. He dressed her as a little lady in miniature. He paid for her to go to a boarding school. And I do believe that because she quite clearly had an education somewhere. She was known as really good company, good conversationalist. It was a double-edged sword. She ended up really being neither one thing 
nor the other. She'd grown up a tradesman's daughter in Soho. She actually received a proposal of marriage from another tradesman's son, which would probably have led to a nice, happy life. Maybe a little bit of a boring one compared to the life she led. Soho's next to Covent Garden and the West End of London, which was just coming into life then. So she grew up alongside that. She'd seen this other world. And I think with her education, she just wanted a part of that. Yeah, makes sense. And then this gorgeous man comes in and she gets to go to great parties and be on the arm of him. And I think I would have walked down the same road. And then he turns out to be the cad. And it's so easy at that point to then fall into the other trap and that is you you can make quite a lot of money as if you're lucky courtesan or sex worker tell us a little bit about that journey because this would have been when she met Samuel Derrick right more than likely yes he haunted Covent Garden he knew a lot of the women who worked in London's sex trade it's inconceivable that he wouldn't have noticed Kitty and known about her we forget because obviously London feels so big now but actually London at that time in the 18th century although it was expanding was pockets of little areas and people really would have known each other and this is her showing again her agency because she was able to fall back on millinery or at least working in that arena and her dad was a tradesman so she wasn't destitute and she also was a Londoner so London wasn't overwhelming for her but you think she took that route into sex worker? I do yes and I can understand why she did it. It was something that would give women a level of independence in an era where they didn't have the independence we take for granted now. If a woman was a successful courtesan, she could call the shots to a certain extent. There was nothing to stop her going and finding another man. It could be quite lucrative for some, if they say for a rainy day. Most didn't. For some, it led to lasting relationships and marriage and even titles for a lucky few. For the majority, it possibly led to the debtor's prison when they got a bit old and the money ran out and they were no longer the new face on the scene. For Kitty at her age, I can understand why she did it. And I think her aim was probably to snare a wealthy husband and secure the good life she wanted. And she did do that. She managed that. This is my argument is that even though it was a tragic end, it was a success story. And I think what's remarkable is you just have to keep reminding yourself how young she was. So she's rolling the dice, obviously an optimist, obviously fun-loving, so was always going to take the what she deemed to be fun route. Played the card she was dealt. She's obviously a pretty girl of the time she had something whether it's you know charisma whatever but there was definitely that it quality because for sure she was able to hold the public persona that she developed and you mentioned her going away from society and then coming back the Nathaniel Hone portrait I'm looking at 1759 which is the moment that her celebrity really hit its peak because that was when she collaborated with Reynolds on the first two portraits the first of which is at Petworth House the second of which is Cleopatra Dissolving the Pearl I think they honed what they were doing after the first portrait and doubled down because the first portrait as you've put in the book they came together collaborated and the prints were then sold to the public so I think they saw that there was a market for it saw the process and then did it again and then chose to depict Kitty as the Egyptian queen Cleopatra, which again is saying something. These things are always so loaded with symbolism. I'm trying to find her agency within that. And you're saying she absolutely knew exactly what she was doing at that point where either Reynolds went to her, she went to Reynolds and she came together and they decided how they were going to do this. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that 1759 episode? This was post the fallen woman incident. So I know it had been written about, but it was pre- the pamphlet of it. 
It's quite a famous pamphlet, isn't there, of that incident. Do you want to talk to us about that episode? The moment she's shot into the stratosphere as far as celebrity. Yeah, it's Kitty taking hold of her image. You can compare it to an Instagram influencer today, I think, the way that they might Photoshop a photo or stage it slightly so you don't see what's really in the background. You just see the bit that they want you to. This was Kitty presenting herself as she wanted to be seen. And in those first two portraits, I think, I don't know if you agree, she's every inch the courtesan in those two, especially the Cleopatra one. That's kind of the harlot queen almost, isn't it? A woman who just loves jewels. I'd love to know how her collaboration with Reynolds came about. There's nothing that survived that I could find to say who proposed those initial portraits. But they both stood to make a lot of money from the prince. That was a really lucrative business. Reynolds, I would imagine, probably earned more from the print than he did from painting the actual portraits. Augustus Keppel, we've already mentioned, is supposed to be the one who introduced her to Reynolds. But I think definitely Kitty and Reynolds saw a big opportunity there to collaborate. And yeah, those portraits are fascinating. And I'm so thankful to you as well for taking my research and building on it and running with it, because I'm no art historian. And I tried to put as much information as I could into the book in the hope that someone like you would come along and build on it. Yeah, I'm really thankful to you and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you discover about it as well. And I'm going to create the scene of the first sitting for that portrait. Regardless of what we can and can't know about the context of them coming together, we do know that they had a great relationship because they came together 20 times just in 1759. She came to him. It's recorded. It could have been more, but it's recorded that she sat for him 20 times. So they would have built up a relationship and they've even talked about the idea that Reynolds and her had some sort of romance but it's kind of missing the point the point is they had a brilliant relationship and they benefited from that relationship and I think there was something to be said just on the nuance of that relationship that always gets missed let's talk about Reynolds quickly you know it's his tricentenary of his birth July 16th he was brilliant at finding those women that were unconventional that were going to get his paintings talked about and then juxtapositioning them in ways at exhibitions so that people did talk about them he knew exactly what he was doing talking about influences it's written about his prowess with publicity but I think what he saw was someone who was equal to that in Kitty and vice versa you can speculate about whether they had a sexual relationship or not the point is they did what they did and look at the lasting effect it had and that's to me the most interesting point and she will have absolutely had say in what they depicted and why even just from the perspective of having to carry it off in public. I also love your observations about the fact that they didn't exhibit the Cleopatra dissolve in the Pearl portrait because that indicates that they were holding on to it. One, she had it at her own home and two, the public weren't able to see it unless they bought the prints and this is what I mean by honing what they did after the first portrait and the success of the prints. They went, hold on a minute, let's dial it up to 11. Let's depict her as a classic image, a queen. Let's make reference to a classic story within that that's always going to be brilliant for her, that compare with Cleopatra and debauchery and glamour and let's do it so that we make the most impact and the most money. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that because I think the reference to the Cleopatra dissolving the pearl story also relates to what I want to talk about next which is Casanova. Yeah there's a theory behind the Cleopatra portrait that it was painted partly to kind of mock Hogarth. He'd been commissioned by a man called Sir Richard Grosvenor to paint a portrait and Grosvenor had left the subject entirely up to Hogarth and he was expecting one of Hogarth's typical genre paintings or caricatures and Hogarth took the opportunity to go in a totally different direction and paint something that was a kind of 
copy almost of an Italian old master. And Pellister Richard Grosvenor was horrified when he saw it and refused to pay for it. And there was a bit of a rivalry at the time between Reynolds and Hogarth. It's been suggested that it was maybe Reynolds' response to this to try and paint something similar in this style. And he chose the Cleopatra dissolving the pearl. And there was nobody better at the time than Kitty to depict Cleopatra. And I think everybody who viewed it would have understood that. And like you said, the painting being referred to as being in Kitty's own private possession absolutely increased the value of the prints. And it was almost like people could have a little piece of her there. And you've also touched on their relationship. You mentioned that there's rumours that had an affair and Reynolds' appointment books have survived for most of the year, which gives the dates and the times of the sitting. And Kitty's were nearly always first thing in the morning. So you could say she was just an early riser and Reynolds took advantage of that, but his studio was in his house and perhaps she hadn't had far to travel. Whatever the case, if they did have an affair, it was of a fairly short duration and they worked together for years after that. So it obviously didn't affect their friendship and their working relationship. Even later on, she went to sit for him on Christmas Day one year. Yeah, I think they had a fantastic relationship. Yeah, I do too. And I think that that's the important part, regardless of anything else. And I think just because she was a sex worker, I think that historically, historians have assumed that. And I think that that misses the point entirely. And that is that the evidence of that is is there still for us to see. The Cleopatra dissolving the pearl portrait is up at Kenwood House. And then you've got the, I don't know, did they call it the Dear Kit portrait the first one it's been referred to as a few things i always refer to it as the letter when she's holding a letter do you know i have yet to see a lot of these portraits i actually wrote this book during lockdown i'd planned it out beforehand and i'd planned trips away to visit all the relevant places and then everywhere closed i still need to catch up with seeing most of the portraits in real life but I've got to say, um, archivists and people at the various houses were absolutely fantastic in the, the help they gave me remotely. <laughs> I think we're doing a great job in bringing more attention to these portraits because I think they are so relevant today as extant evidence of a life that, if you look at it, has so much reverberation that you can see in the world today. 20 sittings which I think is interesting because, again, I've got, not got a lot to compare it to, but I would say that's a lot of sittings in one year, do you think? It does seem like it. As I say, art history isn't my forte. I had to become something of a, a self-taught art historian while I was researching this book. My understanding is that the artist would do the initial sketch and then possibly use other models to fill in as he completed it. So it indicates a great relationship. And like you said, the other things, the Christmas Day visit and all these other factors indicate that they had a great relationship. Cleopatra dissolved in the Pearl is a reference to an old story about Cleopatra and Antony having a competition to see who could be the most debauched and the most profligate because that's what they did, obviously. And Cleopatra taking out her pearl earring and putting it into her wine or whatever the drink was that meant that it dissolved. So it was obviously acidic and then drank it, basically. That's the reference. It has echoes of what was happening then with Kitty because obviously you're talking about a gorgeous woman, someone that everyone talked about. But also there was a lot of apocryphal stories, a lot of exaggeration because she had a public persona the reference is it's multi-layered she was idolized she was a queen here's reynolds and kitty depicting a courtesan as a queen which again is a very reynolds thing to do because you know he painted actresses and women who push the boundaries of what a woman should be there's a lot going on there and we're still talking about it today 
So it obviously had an impact, and I argue that it also had an impact on Casanova, who, after the fact, so good 20 years on, wrote about about meeting Kitty in London, and I argue that this painting and the image that then grew around it purposefully, with the seed planted by Reynolds and Kitty, meant that someone like Casanova, A, wanted to be associated with Kitty, whether he did meet her or not is another question but B wrote about it even 20 years on and then referenced her in connection to a similar story about the banknote do you want to tell us about that the stories about Casanova oh they annoyed me because anywhere you look about Kitty anyone who's written about her in the past has repeated these stories and I was really looking forward to telling them and then when I started looking into it they're completely false there's (laughs) no way they could be true Casanova was in London in 1763 and Kitty, her star shone brightly, she said 1759, by 1760, she kind of slipped into obscurity, she'd left that life behind. There's no way she was in a brothel in 1763, as Casanova described, she never operated from a brothel anyway. In his memoirs, he's got her dressed for a night at the theatre in all her finery, dripping with diamonds, waiting for a man to come and collect her at this brothel. No, I don't believe that at all. He might have met her. They might have bumped into each other at Vauxhall Gardens, say, but it's not as he's described it. And then he tells this story about Kitty eating a banknote, a £100 banknote. This has been repeated by respected historians, Adam Benitem, and no one seems to have put two and two together and realised that it's a very well-known story that was applied to another courtesan, a woman named Fanny Murray, some years earlier than Kitty. It was Horace Walpole who recounted that. Anything about the 18th century, everyone knows about Walpole. He's the man of letters and just this inveterate gossip. He knew all about everybody. And he recounted that Fanny Murray, she was in the keeping of a man called Sir Richard Atkins, and she'd asked him for some money. And he passed her a £20 note. And she obviously thought this was a bit miserly, not as much as she wanted. And so she slapped it between two pieces of red and ate it in front of him to spite him. So Casanova's repeated that story, upped the value of the banknote to £100 and applied it to Kitty. I think for him to write that all those years later, it's a measure of Kitty's fame that he'd remembered the story, but he'd applied it to Kitty, Fanny Murray, who wasn't far behind Kitty. You know, she wasn't that long ago. She was all but forgotten. It was Kitty's name that was still the famous one. I half suspect that if he did meet a woman in a brothel, because Kitty was, as I said, off the scene that maybe some enterprising brothel madam had a girl who was pretending to be Kitty and introducing her to people like Casanova. Casanova apparently thought he could have her for about five guineas a night, but he found her quite irritating. He said she was chattering and wouldn't shut up. As you say, Casanova's memoirs were written a couple of decades later. I don't think we'll ever know the truth about whether he embellished them or had a false memory or whatever. But it does make sense, and you've just hit on a few things that also annoyed me, the fact that people mention it as if it did happen for sure they don't mention the nuance within it or the holes within the story but you've depicted that you know there was a banknote story it just wasn't hers whether purposeful or just his recollection got cloudy either way it does illustrate the power of that image and I think the Reynolds portraits were a lot to do with that weren't they because you know let's face it they were still talking about that and the prints it was a perfect storm of different things that came together to create this persona that still reverberates today and one of those things is the mezzo tinting the Irish engravers that had come over at that very time to London who were making money it was a burgeoning industry and they hit the nail on the head at the right time with this 
combination of this amazing courtesan press attention and this new way of doing things. You mentioned in the book that there was a fad at the time of people having print rooms, which again, you can relate it to the internet and the way that that exploded. And all of a sudden, everyone can see everyone's marketed version of their lives on their phones every day. And I think this was a version of that, wasn't it? The fact that her face would have been everywhere. It was huge business. There were print shops where the prints would be in the windows. People would gather to look at the latest print. And you had aristocrats and royalty alongside actresses and women who were known as courtesan. All statuses there. Women would have bought them to copy Kitty's fashion. She was known as a fashion icon. Men would have bought them for obvious reasons. Some people just wanted to have a portrait of her. Some people would put the prints on the wall and put a frame around it as though it was the portrait. And as you say, it's the same with people following influencers today. And going back further, it's the same probably in the 70s and 80s of people having posters on their walls of famous people. Now it's seeing those curated images on your your Instagram feed, say. But it's no different at all. Well, of course, that's why she was so well-known, because it wasn't just the portrait, which they kept back, and actually people didn't see the original portrait unless they were very lucky. But it was those prints that made their way to everyone's everyday life. So much so that Maria Gunning, she was pitted as Kitty's rival. I yawn a little bit because I just think, ugh, why do women always have to be pitted against each other? But it happened, and it happens again and again in the press. Because it sells papers, doesn't it? But basically, Maria Gunning was actually walking along St James's Park and was mistaken for Kitty and allegedly manhandled, like mobbed because of it. So that's the extent to which Kitty's face was known, is that right? It is. And she wasn't just known in London either because of the popularity of the prince. She was known the length and breadth of the country. I found a fantastic letter where a country vicar was talking about her. You know, she was known to all levels of society. And because of her fashion as well, she was known. She invented the Kitty Fisher bonnet. And I found adverts for that for sale in Boston in the US. So, yes, yeah, she was known worldwide. Her fame really did spread all over. And the courtesans who were her contemporaries, they also had portraits done. They were also prints of those. But for some reason, they've just not captured the level of interest that Kitty did. Like I said, she had that it quality. Possibly you could argue that it's because she joined in with Reynolds in controlling her image and promoting it, whereas maybe other women just posed for him and didn't have the input that Kitty did. I honestly think that that's the difference. That's the secret ingredient. The ingredient is she found it fun. It was a mutually created thing from a place of authenticity. And I think that that's also what you're picking up. Hilary Mantel always said, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, always said that it's the historians with that sixth sense. It's the researchers with that kind of sixth sense that connect the dots that are able to come to these conclusions based on seeing what's there and feeling their way through. Obviously, it's not going to be something you can put in a footnote but the point is there's no way that that kind of level of notoriety that was continued okay it was a short period but it was sustained and is now still sustained this many centuries on the reason that she stands out is that it came from a place that was authentic you can tell definitely in a modern world with television screens and cameras the camera never lies and maybe the the paintbrush never lies in this instance because you know it was in correlation with all the other factors the prints the press articles the public sightings her actual trajectory what she did and who she met and the way it played out that all evidences to me exactly what you've just said that she had a key and pivotal 
say it came from her. Mm. Reynolds was inspired by her. And I think that's really important. And I love that you found details like the Kitty Fisher bonnet. That makes me so happy because no one's bothered to go that far to find out those things. And like you say, it was always there. It's just no one's gone, I'm going to go deeper into this woman because she's interesting and I want to find out more rather than, oh, she was a a beautiful courtesan and that was that. And that's why I'm so excited about the portrait come to life in the scene because she's such an interesting character and so young, but so brilliant and vital that we can still see that from this perspective. I think that's insane. Of course, there's a level of projection. We all are coming at this from a modern lens, but I think that's also the reason why she's important to talk about now, don't you? I do. I think one other thing with the portraits as well, because she sat for Reynolds so many times, there's a definite trajectory to them. The early ones, I said she's every inch the courtesan. She's looking directly at the viewer. It's quite confrontational. Whereas the later ones, when she'd stepped back from the profession and she was living with a man that she'd fallen in love with again, it's kind of a softer kitty. I think her real name was Catherine Maria Fisher. And I think the ones that Reynolds painted of her later are more Catherine Fisher than Kitty Fisher. There's a definite difference. And then, as I said, the Nathaniel Home one was back to her being a courtesan. Her face is very painted again. She's looking very directly. I would love to know why she chose him and not Reynolds for that portrait. Possibly Reynolds was just too busy and she needed it doing quickly because she needed to find someone who would give her some money, basically. So maybe that was all it was but it's always seemed odd to me that she went to Nathaniel Home for that one. Is there any evidence that she paid for them herself or that there was a deal going on between her and the painter? There was no money exchanged, i.e. they knew that they would gain a lot of attention and make money in a different way. Yeah, for most of Reynolds, it's very difficult to tell. Most of them don't seem to have been recorded as being commissioned. Some were bought after the event. That's where the theories come from, that they were doing this to their mutual benefit to make money from the prints, rather than someone had gone to Reynolds and said, I would like a portrait of Kitty, I'll give you this amount of money. There's one where she's got a locket round her neck. There's three versions of that. It looks like at least one was possibly painted after her death as well. There was possibly an interest in people going to him. The man in the locket changes. It could even have been that someone had gone to him and said could you put my image in there to make it look like he was my lover I want to hang this on the wall of my mansion and impress my friends that there just isn't enough information not that I've found anywhere I'd love to know it's out there and someone will find it one day but there just isn't enough information to answer that question fully okay Charles Bingham who definitely paid for the Cleopatra portrait was one of the men who kept her she'd ended up in an awful situation where she was kept by five or six men who were part of a gambling club which raised eyebrows even in that day they all gave her a percentage of their winnings honestly it's like men clubbing together to buy a or something it's despicable Bingham had been her keeper before and then he joined in with these men and he obviously wanted to own the portrait but there's no evidence that he was the man who instigated it more that once he'd seen it he thought okay I'd like to own that that episode this is also what's probably is to her credit that something like that that could have been so damning on her whether a courtesan or not she was able to still be adored 
still not be really downtrodden by the labelling or the downsides of being a sex worker in such a public way. The force of her personality or maybe, I don't know, what was it that kept her from not being publicly damned for those kind of things? Or do you think that finding out about her being owned by a club, do you think that people in the street didn't really know about that? They just saw this amazing, beautiful woman who people clamoured to see. What do you think about that? I think before she had her accident, it would have been something that was known about amongst a certain circle. But the juvenile adventure, that two-volume pamphlet that was published after the accident, it laid all that bare. Everyone would have known about it then. I've actually argued that in terms of being courtesan, she wasn't that successful, certainly not as successful as she wanted to be. I keep the bedroom door closed. I'm not that sort of author. It's not that sort of book. More the business side of being a courtesan. The aim was to find a wealthy, influential man, preferably titled, who would keep you. And Kitty didn't really find that level of man. It was more lower down the scale. Often the men who were keepers couldn't really afford to, and they passed her on to a friend. And then she ended up being kept by this gambling club. She just wasn't that successful at it, which really surprised me when I started researching her. For someone who's been known for more than two centuries as a courtesan, you'd imagine she was super successful at it. And then she turned her back on it so quickly. She was mentioned as being the only courtesan to have the level of wealth to be able to afford liveried servants. So do you think that's another exaggerated tittle-tattle thing? Or do you think that she did make money one way or another? She definitely made money. It said that the first man who kept her provided sort of hired horses for a carriage rather than giving her her own stable and she didn't like that at all. So she made sure that the man who replaced him provided her with horses of her own. As I said, it was for quite a short duration, but I think for those few weeks or months, however long it was, she did manage to make quite a bit of money from the men. It just didn't last very long. (laughs) It seems to me then the huge success of her story is the public persona that obviously was lucrative one way or another because it may not be to the Maria and Elizabeth Gunning level of Duchess and Countess, which we'll get onto, but she definitely had notoriety that people wanted in on. Yeah, definitely. And that's how she made her money. So again, there's no evidence that she was cut into any kind of deal with the prince, but there's also no evidence there that Joshua Reynolds made money from them, but we could probably infer that he did. Yes, and while there's no evidence to say that Kitty didn't make money, there's no evidence the other way. It's quite likely that they had a 50-50 deal going even. We just won't know. And that's, again, one of my arguments is that there's no way one way or another they didn't know that they were going to benefit financially. We can assume that somewhere down the line everyone was a winner in that scenario, including the engravers and the printers. Yeah, she took over the, the care of a family. Her father had come out of work, more or less, became ill. And she's recorded as supporting her mother and her siblings. So she stepped up. She took on the role of the man of the family and the provider. Yes, let's talk about Maria and Elizabeth Gunning because I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of frustrating that two women that obviously had so much in common were pitted against each other as rivals and they should have been friends. They should have been best friends, but they weren't. There was about seven years difference between Maria Gunning and Kitty. Do you want to explain about them and the relationship to Kitty? Yeah, the Gunning sisters, they were Irish, beautiful, from a family that had aristocratic connections but very little money. And the two eldest, Elizabeth and Maria, turned up in London 
and they caused an instant sensation in high society. They were introduced to the king, they were invited to all the best balls and parties. They definitely were courtesans, but they were no different from Kitty in that they were seeking a good marriage to a rich and preferably titled man. So there, there were definite similarities there. Both Gunning sisters achieved their aim. They had many interested suitors, but they held out for the jackpot. And Elizabeth became the Duchess of Hamilton and Maria the Countess of Coventry. And it was Maria in particular that seems to have been the more famous of the two. And she is the one that was known as Kitty's rival. She was also gossiped about in newspaper columns and talked about by pamphlet writers of the day. But because of her status, she was deferred to in a slightly different way because she was a countess. I think said that Kitty saw Maria as a rival, there will be a little bit of embellishment to this. As you said earlier, the newspapers, the wits of the day, did like to paint it like that. It didn't help probably that, as I said, Kitty was kept by this group of gamblers and one of the men was Maria's husband, the Earl of Coventry. So that would definitely have caused some kind of row between the two women. The Countess of Coventry was a fashion icon. She'd hit that level before Kitty had burst onto the scene and women copied whatever the Countess wore and she'd had a very stylish new writing habit made and Kitty wanted one. It said that she badgered the Earl to tell her who his wife's habit maker was. She'd denied the Earl of Coventry access to her bedroom and eventually she wore him down and he gave her the detail. Maria and Kitty met in Hyde Park, both wearing the same riding habit. And there's supposed to have been words exchanged between the two. I'd love to think that's true. It's a fantastic story, and definitely there was some rivalry between them. It will have been exaggerated and encouraged by the wits of the day. And Maria was said to be someone that made faux pas, which I always found brilliant. That was her little quirk that people loved in her, I think. You're at a high society ball or event, you know, and you always want that one person that's going to say something that's just going to put the cat amongst the pigeons. And I just think, oh, I'd love to have met Maria Gunnings. Apparently she was introduced to George II when he was quite elderly and he asked her what she was most looking forward to seeing in London and she said a coronation. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, means that the king has to die. Oh my goodness, I just think, yeah, I want to be sat next door, at least an earshot of of Maria at any party. But what's kind of ironic is that actually they both did pass away of the same thing and the press did say that it was lead makeup poisoning, which it's fascinating that that is how they both tragically had an untimely end to their story after having such a bright shining career both of them and marriage and you know the kind of happy ending that you would expect but actually I think Maria's is a slightly sadder story and I think as often is the case when society women at that time were married it was kind of a gilded cage and I kind of see it that Maria was actually potentially envious of the fact that Kitty A was younger and coming up and snapping at her heels but also that she had a modicum of autonomy And I think that Maria, although she got the prize of Countess married well, it wasn't necessarily happily ever after at all for her, was it? It wasn't at all. The Earl treated her badly. They had periods where they were living apart. Both are said to have taken lovers. I mean, we know the Earl did, but Maria was rumoured to have taken lovers as well. It certainly wasn't a happy marriage. Yeah, she's one that seemed to have this perfect life by society and held up as this shining beacon, this fashion icon. And behind the scenes, it was very different. And there's Kitty, loving life and not necessarily being tied down in the same way. So let's talk about the way it ended for Kitty, because, again, I refuse to say that it was, wasn't anything but a success story, because I think her life was just short but 
spectacular. And I think the end, again, something that has been just written as if it's fact without anyone looking into it, is now it's being uncovered by people such as yourself that it was tuberculosis that was the cause of death. But you also correlate that with the lead makeup poisoning story that the press latched onto. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So when Kitty stepped back from her fame, she'd went to live with a man named William Richard Chetwind. This is the man that she kind of ran away into obscurity with. As I said, I've hypothesised that she did it out of love. And that's purely because I can't see any other reason that she would have done it. He was already married. He was heir to an estate in Staffordshire. But until he came into that estate, he didn't have much spare cash. They lived together in this tumble down old mansion just outside of Croydon. But she lived there for several years. This is one of the other things that surprised me. It was quite a long duration. She stayed there. She passed as his housekeeper, Mrs. Brown, for the sake of politeness. That relationship ended because Chetwind died of TB, and it's likely that Kitty contracted the disease through nursing him, and she wore the whitening makeup, the lead-based makeup that was known as Ceruse, same as any fashionable women of her time did, and it's affected the way these women's stories have been told. It's wicked women paint their faces. But because the makeup was lead-based, it caused lesions and blemishes on the skin which would then need a thicker layer to cover it it was catch 22 and the lead seeped into the body and it slowly destroyed the immune system there's actually a story about the countess of coventry that she first used ceruse when she was in paris on her honeymoon and the earl was horrified and chased around a dining table with his handkerchief trying to wipe it off but she continued with it the countess died first and it's clear from contemporary reports that her disease progressed really swiftly. TB then was a death sentence. There's no two ways about it. But it was a a disease that took a while to show and normally progressed slowly. It wasn't an instant killer. The Countess of Coventry, it shocked everybody by how quickly she died. And it was the same with Kitty. It seems that they'd fatally compromised their immune system. So when the TB took hold, they just couldn't mount any defence to it. Really interesting because the press and I think humans love a story with a moral tale and that gave those people that were writing about these two women a perfect moral ending didn't it if you're too vain if you play the beauty game and you you have men falling at your feet this is what will happen to you in the end it's always irritated me i can see that it's a neat ending to a story especially when you're talking about what came after the georgian era and that you've got the victorians who love to moralize but i'm so happy that you've connected those dots and gone further into that because obviously it was never that simple you still can talk about the fact that they were kind of victims of their own image in a sense but and I think people these days look at the white makeup and go why if you knew it was eating away at your skin it's the same thing with Elizabeth I isn't it you know why would you wear it but we all do things like that now that you can compare whether it's Botox or whether it's surgery or whatever it may be but people will inject their lips and do things that aren't necessarily good for us and take our chances won't we that's something that we still do so if you're living by this and that's how you're getting your validation it's how you're making money it would be very hard not to be part of that then when this illness that was rife takes hold it makes absolute sense but I love that you've added that nuance to the story one moment we do get her voice Kitty's voice is when she puts the advert into the public advertiser let's talk about that because I find that super interesting and again there's parallels with modern women and their dealings with the press talk to us about that moment and when did that happen was that in 1759 as well yes it was in between the first and second volumes coming out as I said I think Kitty had collaborated 
I think she'd found it a bit of a joke. And I think she realised quite quickly that it had backfired, that it had scared off the men who were keeping her. It had left her in quite a precarious situation. And I think that was her attempt to distance herself from it, trying to persuade them that she hadn't been involved in it, that it was somebody else that had concocted this. As I keep saying, she was young. It must have been quite scary to suddenly realise that the rug had been pulled out from under your feet, so to speak, and that all of a sudden everything you'd built had collapsed and you were now going to struggle to survive. I think it was a little bit of damage limitation on Kitty's part. Just to push when it happened, the timeline, the reason being I'm asking is because I want to know where it happened in relation to the paintings, just to see where her relationship with Reynolds sat when that was happening. The paintings are just after the juvenile adventure. The two volumes came out quite quickly after one another. They said it seemed to scare all the men away, apart from one who was an elderly earl from Wiltshire, who was the one who'd suggested the scheme in the first place. He was a bit of a miser and he'd wanted Kitty but hadn't wanted to pay to keep a rather expensive London courtesan who had a liking for diamonds and fine clothes. So he'd suggested this. All the rest got scared off. He ended up being the last man standing. The Easter of 1759, Kitty had been invited to his country estate and the press was full of rumours that she was going to come back a countess. She didn't. It looks like he would quite like to have had her live with him as his mistress behind closed doors, quietly, cheaply. But if Kitty was going to do that, she wanted love with it as well. She proved with William Richard Chetwin that she would settle for that. But I think there had to be something else involved as well. I absolutely think she'd have married him if he'd proposed. (laughs) He'd have been too good a catch to have turned down. So she came back to London after that, probably a bit upset by it. Everything seemed to have collapsed now. She needed to somehow recapture her fame. And that's when she went to Reynolds and that's how she she reinstigated everything. So the Juvenile Adventures of Kitty Fisher came before, then the public advertiser, then the second volume, then she came back to London and went to Reynolds. Yes. There you go. See, that again, it just shows that she was on the lookout for the public persona that we were discussing and the fact that she looks like the courtesan she wanted to be in the images. Let's get to her legacy. Do you think, I mean, obviously we're talking about a public persona that was honed and chiselled within her collaboration with Reynolds and Hone. And What do you think she wanted her legacy to be back then? She must have been aware that these portraits were fantastic and they were going to long outlive her. There's so many portraits now of unknown men and women, it's frustrating as a researcher. But back then, you probably wouldn't have expected your portrait to lose its attribution like that. So yes, she must have expected that her name, possibly her infamy, would have continued. In terms of the legacy she wanted for herself, I think she would have settled for a good marriage and a family, perhaps to leave heirs behind her. I'm sure if she'd lived, she would have become a society hostess. We would have a very different view of her. We'd probably be having a totally different conversation right now. No doubt she would have been a redeemed woman. I think the other thing is, when the first portraits were painted, she was living for the day, probably without a thought for the consequences. She grew up in life through a few punches. I think she would have seen things a little bit differently and maybe viewed the legacy she wanted to leave a little differently than she had in those first days. I think you're right. The Juvenile Adventures of Kitty Fisher being published as well was good for her to see that it can go wrong and there are downsides and she needs to be a little more clever and in control of the public persona and I think that the yin and yang of life, these things often are the lessons we need to learn to change the way we do things for the better. Do you think she'd be tickled by the fact that we're talking about her 300 years on I think she'd love it Um, (laughs) I think she'd want to be remembered (laughs) I do too and I think that she's probably finally 
breathing a sigh of relief that we're actually getting to a more three-dimensional portrait of her, right? Yes, rather than just Kitty Fisher, the courtesan. My intention was to show her as a woman. Obviously, the courtesan is part of her, it's part of her life. But I did want to show her as a woman in her own right, as a daughter, as a sister, as a lover, as a wife. As an agent throughout this crazy little world that she created, what do you think her relevance is today? We've touched on it a little bit, but what do you think we can learn from Kitty and what do you think her legacy is today. Interesting to see that despite the way the world's moved on, some things have remained exactly the same. You can compare Kitty with women today in the way she was treated, in the attitudes towards her, and as we've discussed, in the way she controlled her image and her celebrity. One thing that's just happened that's been really interesting, some media students at my university have used this book to create some short radio dramas. And these are 20-year-olds who, by and large, have no interest in history at all, let alone a courtesan like Kitty Fisher. And most of them brought her bang up to date. One had reinterpreted her as a wannabe beauty blogger, and the Countess of Coventry was a more established blogger. And they played on the rivalry between them, but they did end up making them friends, having the Countess give Kitty advice at the end. But it was fascinating to see how they reinterpreted Kitty and placed this so effortlessly into today's world. It shows us the beginning of what is now very much our world, isn't it? The starting point for what then came and what we live with now which is the cult of celebrity I personally feel like we're ready to move on from the cult of celebrity for lots of reasons because I think it's to the detriment of our own communities that we I'm saying this from someone who's been in the music industry my whole life so you know I've been part of that world and I have friends that are famous and known and I see how odd that scenario is and how mostly people that I know want to do the thing that they do what they they're good at what they love and it's just a byproduct it's very interesting when you're famous for being famous and you start to play that game and the downsides of that and I think we see that in things like reality stars or influencers and I think it takes people away from the things that really matter which is community and helping each other and having that sense of the real things that we should be putting our time and energy into so that's a whole nother podcast but I think that the beginning of this and the fact that it was done as a commercial endeavor to make money sometimes we've got to stop and go does it bring into the world I think that's another reason why she's so important to talk about right now I have to ask you this question because my mum will be very upset if I don't we all know the nursery rhyme which apparently was sang to the tune of Yankee Doodle I don't know if that's like a, a newer version of it I don't know if that was the case back then that's my first encounter with the name Kitty Fisher which is Lucy Lockett lost her pocket Kitty Fisher found it not a penny was there in it only ribbon round it now I know there's a few variations of that I would have sang that as a kid who's Lucy Lockett and do you know the origin of that? Lucy Lockett was a character in The Beggar's Opera and there was a satire written in Kitty's Lifetime that played on Lucy Lockett and another character in the play, Polly Peachum, in connection with Kitty. So I think that's possibly the origins of that verse and Lucy Lockett came to represent various women who were courtesans at the same time as Kitty. It proved impossible to totally pinpoint the origins there's been different versions of this song as you said it's sung to the tune we now know as yankee doodle dandy which was a much older folk melody you alluded earlier to maria the countess of coventry getting mistaken for kitty in the london park horace walpole wrote a 
song after that called Kitty Fisher's Jig, which seems to have been sung to the same melody. That might be the basis for the origins of this, but there's been various different versions of the song with different verses, some relating to the American Wars of Independence. It's really interesting that the one verse that has been remembered that has come down to us and survived is the one mentioning Kitty Fisher out of all the myriad versions that there were. And it's so interesting because I've done a few events now and people will come up and look at my book and they'll say, Kitty Fisher, I know that name. Say, so it'll be the nursery rhyme. Oh, yes, was she real? Then I explain, yes. She's been remembered through that, but I think most people haven't connected her to a real living human being before. And the power of ballads before print before any of those things the other way we got our information was through song and I think that that's evidence of how strong that way of communicating is brilliant and I'm a songwriter so I also love that and I think that tells us a lot again about what we find fascinating and what gets passed down and the fact that there were two women in that obviously not Maria it's Lucy Lockett but again it has relations to the fact that you put two women in a scenario like that and that's what we remember what does that say about us has she been in any film or tv depictions have you seen kitty represented on screen in any way one of the characters in harlots was based on kitty fisher i think she has served as the inspiration for a few different characters i can't actually think of anything off the top of my head i'm sure there is something where she's possibly been in in her own right but i do think her story would translate so well into a tv drama or film it's something i'd absolutely love to see happen i feel exactly the same way it's all there And it's all real life. And that's what's brilliant about it is that you can stay very true to the sources, I think, and get an amazing story out of it with many, many other characters that are brilliant, like the Gunning Sisters, for example. And I do this at the end of every podcast. I sit there and go, right, needs to be something. It needs to be a play, a film, a series. But yes, I completely concur. Let's go for a fun one. Do you have a favourite Kitty Fisher anecdote or fact? One of my favourites is that Kitty is said to have started a fashion of drinking tea in her box at the theatre and the opera. And that was copied by other high society women. And I absolutely love the idea of Kitty sat there, all of finery, jewellery sparkling away in the candlelight enjoying a cuppa and I hope she had a biscuit to dunk into it (laughs) and she would have because you know let's face it there was something a little rough around the edges about our kitty and I think that's one of the reasons why she's so endearing because I think that she would have found the comedy in that I mean that's what you show in your book and the fact that she was pushing the boundaries she was aware she was pushing the boundaries and then everyone copied her because they could say oh well if she can do it I'm gonna do it and again tantamount to her charisma and the power of her personality I think we can put that scene in the tv show don't you definitely if kitty were a superhero what would her superhero power be maybe time travel we've talked about how she's managed her celebrity in a way that's so recognizable today so perhaps she managed to travel into the 2020s and get a few tips to take back with her I love that. That's amazing. Maybe that's what it is. It's the key to her success is that she has a time machine. (laughs) Maybe it's in a teapot. That's the portal. I don't know. Let's think. What would be the Kitty Fisher bonnet? She puts that on her head and she's able to time travel. I don't know. Something like that. (laughs) I love that. If you could ask Kitty, after all of this, all of this research, all these years that you've spent in Kitty Fisher's world, trying to piece together her life, if you could ask her one question... What would it be? It's so difficult to narrow this down because there's so many I'd like to I'll ask give you her. a couple then. Go on. I know you're interested in Kitty's portrait, so I think I'll ask one that's for both of us. There's so many portraits of her, including miniatures. There's even more reputed ones. There's a portrait that I found described that is by Thomas Gainsborough, 
that's supposed to depict Kitty. It was once at Strawberry Hill. I don't know its location now. So you had to track all these portraits down, analyse them and try to work out exactly when in her life they were painted. I had a whole timeline trying to slot them in. So I think my question to Kitty would be, for both of us, can you please give me a comprehensive list of all the portraits you sat for with dates and any other relevant information about them? <laughs> Do you know what? You're very practical, Joanne. I can see why you're a researcher. Because that is exactly what we need, isn't it? To be able to put on the touring exhibition, which we could definitely curate together. All right, that's brilliant. That's a very practical question. I'll give you one more question that's a little bit more about her personality, maybe. Do you know, one other question I'd like to ask, and it's, it's actually a little bit of a sad one, this. In all my research, there was never any mention that Kitty might have been pregnant, which for a woman who was a courtesan is kind of surprising there's just no children mentioned at all and as I said especially when she was living with William Richard Chetwin there was quite a few years where she seems to have been living in domestic harmony I would like to know if Kitty didn't think it was too personal a question if there ever had been any pregnancies I would love to know a little bit more about that interesting trying to think what I would ask her I just want a conversation I'd go and have tea with her I'd go to the theatre and have tea and cause a stir I'd go to a relaxed performance of something with Kitty talk to her all night and bend her ear and I'm sure take many notes and then get her on Instagram and become super rich in this world (laughs) because I'm sure we could do it oh wow thanks Joanne you've been amazing to talk to I could stay on here talking for hours she's an endlessly fascinating source of inspiration for me but also potential inspiration for others when they find out about her story so I'm glad that someone else in this world feels as strongly about bringing the real kitty Fisher as much as we possibly can with the tools that we're given to the world because I think she deserves people to know about who she was. Anyone wants to find out what you're up to and please do tell us what you're up to now and what you're working on. Can you tell us where to find you? I have a website which is joannemajor.com. You can find the links to my social media through that or contact me through my website. At the moment, as I said, I'm currently doing my MA in creative writing so all my focus for the next few weeks is on that. I do have one more non-fiction book I want to work on as well which is a local Lincolnshire woman. It'll be a few years before that sees the light of day but that's a project I've got in hand as well well can you please come on the podcast and talk about that woman when you're ready definitely and thank you for having me I've really enjoyed chatting to you thanks for being here Joanne